Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, your host. Catechism. It's a word you probably haven't heard much in Methodist circles, but it's a word that's been vital to other Christian traditions. We might think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, for example, which provides the doctrinal foundation for some Reformed churches. When I was growing up as a young Presbyterian, for example, I had to memorize the questions and answers for the Shorter Catechism in order to become a member of the church. And that put me on solid ground for understanding and living out my Christian faith in line with Christians across time and space. After all, that's what catechism means. It means instruction. It's a shorthand way for teaching the faith to people of all ages, a way that can be learned and digested and committed to memory as a guide for the Christian life and as a guard against false teaching. We know John Wesley loved the Shorter Catechism, even offering revised version of it for the people called Methodists, but much of Methodism, and particularly United Methodism, hasn't had a catechism of its own that draws together our doctrines into a teachable form. Until now, that is. The Global Methodist Church recently released a catechism for the new denomination. It was put together by a diverse team of scholars, pastors, and laity, and I think this catechism offers the church a gift of clarity and a tool for teaching for what we believe. Dr. Jason Vickers, professor of theology at Asbury Seminary, led this team, and he's my guest today to talk about all things catechetical. Jason Vickers, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. I should say welcome back. We had you on to talk about Wesley Sermons a couple years ago, so it's good to have you back. Uh, a little less beard than before, though. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm I'm letting it grow a little bit right now, uh, you know, getting ready for fall and winter, but but yeah, it's, it's a little shorter than before. Hunting season is coming, I think. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> so let's start with the basic question. Why is catechism so important, and who is it for? Yeah, that's a great question, Bob. So I think um, a lot of people realize that we've realized for some time that particularly uh, in in American Christianity, but but this there would be other reasons related to global Christianity. Uh, the there's been a concern about let's let's say biblical literacy, theological literacy at the most basic levels. Uh, so there's a you've already said you know eloquently at the beginning that that it's it's a little bit astonishing that the lack of attentiveness to catechism and to instruction and to teaching to the basic doctrines of the faith uh, that that we've seen in a lot of churches over the last say 25 years maybe a little more and we can't get into the roots of that why that's the case but what we notice i can tell you as as a seminary professor uh sometimes it's it's a little bit surprising what students who are coming to seminary so we're not talking about you know people getting ready uh for baptism or or you know children or young people but they're adults and they've been in the church for a while uh, but they've had very little exposure to basic doctrine uh, and that's that's not uncommon and that's certainly not their fault it's just a result of the the churches that they've been in uh not taking time to to teach the basic doctrines of the faith i think we've got a lot of evidence on this uh the lack of of familiarity with scripture and doctrine and and in, and the relationship between the two frankly so one of the the functions i should say of a catechism is to is first to help us to get clear on what it is we believe about God, about the world, about Jesus, human beings, sin, uh, salvation, the future, the big questions, you might say. What what are the, the fundamentals, the, the most basic things that we believe as Christians or, as, say, as perhaps as Methodists? Now, I think that that we also need to have an idea of how those beliefs, those fundamental beliefs, are grounded in or or uh, sourced in Scripture. How, how, where do we see them in in Scripture? So, on the one hand, you know, we we're, we we know that we've got a problem with biblical literacy, and then maybe a problem with doctrinal theological literacy. Uh, but also the relation between the two. It's one thing to talk about, say, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, or Jesus' divine nature uh, and its relation to his human nature, but can we actually uh, associate 
that what we believe about such things with particular places in scripture and a good catechism helps us to do that so we we start with a simple question we have a simple answer and then there are biblical texts and we can go and look at those texts and talk about them uh, to get a sense for what are the biblical grounds for this particular belief and i think helping Christians connect doctrine, what we teach, doctrina, what we believe, with Scripture is something that a catechism, a good catechism can do. Help us to see we these doctrines just didn't, you know, we didn't invent them out of thin air, but we they are the result of the careful contemplation of Holy Scripture. Uh, so that's, I think that's important. I want to say one more thing here at the opening about who it's for. You know, Immediately, you, you know, the obvious answer is, well, this is a, a catechism that's, that was uh, produced uh, at, by the Global Methodist Church and or called for and produced by the Global Methodist Church. But its deep sources are Holy Scripture, as I've already said, uh, the Nicene Creed and the Confession of Faith that United Methodists will be familiar with or should be familiar with. And in that sense, it's the sources for this catechism are all sources that other people, other Methodists, United Methodists, Free Methodists, Wesleyans, uh, anyone in the Wesleyan tradition uh, might recognize and agree with. And so I want to make a suggestion that, that this catechism not be seen as something that's only for people affiliated with the Global Methodist Church, but that Methodists and Wesleyans in other denominations might find it very useful and, and very beneficial, very salutary uh, for people uh, who are coming to know and who want to know uh, the basics of Christian faith. That's really helpful. And I, I think there's a, a sort of a universality to to understanding the creed, and you use the Nicene Creed as a ground for the first section of the catechism. So I want to ask this right out, right off the bat because I know this is one of the critiques that that often comes up when I talk when we talk about the Nicene Creed. Some want to point out that Wesley didn't include Article Eight of the Articles of Religion of the three creeds in his revision, and so they want to say, "Well, see, we're not a creedal church. We've never been creedal as Methodists." How do you respond to that? And why are the creeds of particular importance in the new global Methodist church? Well, I think that as to why Wesley may have left that article out, that, that there's a, a, a matter of, of conversation and debate to be had there. On the other hand, there are other places in Wesley, including some of his key sermons, where he clearly uh, supports and is an advocate for the, let's call them the great ecumenical creeds, especially the Apostles and Nicene Creed. And he's he's very clear in many other places. You can look at his sermon on Catholic spirit as an example of this, uh, where in his letter to a Roman Catholic would be another place where you could look to see his support for uh, the Orthodox creeds, the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. Now, so I think for Wesley, it's it's a little bit of a mixed bag in, in the sense that we do have to acknowledge this, this question or possibly criticism that when he when he reduced the articles of religion uh down to you know the 24, I think it is the because we end up with 25, but it with that's one of those is one that we add, you know, uh that that he does cut some material from the the Anglican 39 articles. And, you know, why he makes the decisions he makes, uh, we don't always know. Uh, we, we have, there's some conjecture involved there. But in the case of the creeds, I think I can make a pretty strong case that, that uh, Wesley doesn't have any deep personal reservations about the creeds. As an Anglican, we also need to remember someone who was committed to Anglican worship, to prayer book worship, the creed would have been a regular part of worship for Wesley. Uh, and I don't think there's any uh, hesitation there in terms of his uh, being able to affirm the creed, the Nicene Creed in this case. Yeah, there's now, not, nothing in reading Wesley where you get the idea that he's going off the rails there at all. Right. And, I, and I'm not familiar with, with any places where he goes on any kind of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, long kind of critical uh, rants about the creeds and why they're bad. 
I, I, as far as I know, he he's personally affirming of the creeds. Now, as to the Nicene Creed and and its its role in in this catechism, I want to say I want to stress that we 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 opted for the Nicene Creed largely, say opposed as opposed to the Apostles' Creed, because. The Nicene Creed is seen as the common symbol of faith for Christians around the world. In other words, it gives this catechism its ecumenical character, its, if you will, kind of global Catholic character, Catholic in in the most general sense of the term. Uh, This is a creed, the Nicene Creed, that all the member bodies of the World Council of Churches uh, have signed on to uh, in 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 recent decades uh, in the the faith that we confess or you know that that big document. So it really does represent the vast majority in terms of core beliefs about God, creation, the, the nature and identity of God, God's triune nature and identity, uh, salvation through Christ incarnation, resurrection, the, the, the spirit, the church, these kinds of core essential teachings. Uh, the, the Nicene Creed really does represent what the vast majority of Christians in the world uh, believe, and, and it's, it's the common symbol of faith. So we wanted, and we, we, we chose the, the Nicene Creed, uh, we wanted this, this catechism to be uh, one that that aligns us with the 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 beliefs that are shared by Christians across space and time and throughout the world today, the core beliefs, uh, the the classical ecumenical faith of the church. the uh, the EUB confession, on the other hand, now this is a little wrinkle, and I'll just throw this in on the end. You, you I may be anticipating where you're going. I'm not sure, but um, the confession of faith that we received at the merger of the EUB and Methodist Church in '68. Uh, it what's interesting about it compared to because because you could say, well, why not the Articles of Religion rather than the Confession of Faith? Uh, the conf- and it's not that the Articles of Religion do not inform the thinking that that, that goes into the production of this catechism. They do. But we leaned more heavily on the confession of faith because we actually find it to be uh, more representative of characteristic Wesleyan teachings, uh, teachings especially about sanctification, Christian perfection. Uh, The articles of religion, which, of course, as we said a moment ago, are pared down from the 39 articles of the Church of England. They, for example, they have no article on sanctification and perfection. So the confession of faith, uh, it, it does. And in that sense, it speaks directly to a core belief, a core doctrine, a, a characteristic teaching, you might say, of, of Wesleyan Christianity. So we, 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 we tended to lean more heavily on it. So that the creed, the Nicene Creed, gives the catechism its ecumenical, global Catholic character, um, kind of lowercase c, Catholic, lowercase o, orthodox uh, character. And the confession of faith, its persistent influencing of this catechism uh, is is kind of what helps to give it its Wesleyan shape. I, I love the fact that it's structured in that, that two-tiered kind of uh, approach where you've got the, the witness of the Nicene Creed, and then you have Wesleyan distinctives. And it draws in a lot of other things as well. You use the, the Nicene Creed in the first section, essentially laying it out line by line, and the team you worked with made a choice to do that, line by line in the, in the Nicene Creed, and then use those questions based on each of those statements that seem to, in many ways, restate what's in the creed itself. So, why did you choose this approach? I'm sure it was tempting to want to elaborate on each question because every one of those questions could have multi-page essays done on them. But uh, why this particular approach? Well, first of all, uh, we we do, as you rightly note, there's in the first half, there's a close relationship between the questions and answers on the one hand and each line of the creed on the other. 
And the biggest reason that we we went this way has to do with our hope and, and that we we don't you know, this will vary potentially from church to church. Uh, we we certainly, as a task force, we were not in a position to to know whether this would be the case. Our hope is that in Methodist congregations that would use this catechism, that they would confess the creed at least occasionally in worship. Uh, if it were up to me, we would there would be a, a, a liturgy that would require that on a weekly basis, or a weekly confession of faith uh, of the creed. But our hope is that maybe there will be familiarity with the creed because of worship, uh, confessing the creed in worship. And so then when you come to the catechism, there's a familiar there is a familiarity here. Yeah, this is this is this sounds like something we kind of already know. The catechism then helps you to ask some questions about each part of the creed that you that you're confessing in worship, and to explore it uh, to with a with a kind of preliminary initial answer that, as you say, is somewhat succinct, uh, but then is accompanied by a range of, of biblical texts that you can turn to, look up, read, and hopefully, again, this is a, a successful catechism, you know, by itself, it's not going to do a thing. It's just going to sit there on your laptop or your phone. It For this to work, we are anticipating that there will be people who will lead the discussion, who can help to deepen the response. So the, the initial answers are just that. They're the, the kind of basics, the, the most fundamental thing that we want to say in response to each question. Uh, but then hopefully with a good guide, someone leading conversation, looking up the biblical texts that accompany it, uh, there can be rich theological discussion that deepens the understanding of those basic responses. So all of this is about extending what we do in worship uh, and deepening it, taking a, a, a another step. Because in worship, you just confess the the creed. You don't have time to ask any questions at all. So in a way, the catechism takes you to the next level. Hey, you know that creed we confess every Sunday? Uh, you know, what do we believe about? You know, we say we believe in God and we say certain things about that. Well, let's ask some follow-up questions and begin to think a little more deeply about our faith. It's formational when a congregation says the creed. We do it every Sunday at every service. We also do communion every Sunday at every service. There's something about forming people when they say th something over and over again. Some would say that's just rote kind of memorization, but it comes out when it's needed. And it is, it is inculcating the faith in a regular way. I also tell people that we say the creed after the sermon because that's a check on the heresy that might have happened during the sermon, you know, so, so you can, you can double check it after afterwards, every time. Um, moving on to the section on Wesleyan characteristics, I thought mm -hmm. it was very interesting as I read this, that the very first question in that section, it's question 37, if you're following along in your playbook, mm -hmm. the question is this, are reason, tradition, or experience sufficient guides for Christian doctrine? So right up front, you dealt with the quadrilateral question. That seems to be a big part of our debates in the UMC, a big reason for our separation. How do you, how would you define the authority of scripture and how that relates to this catechism? Right. So that's a, it's a great question. And, and, and it is, as, as I'm sure many of, of your listeners know, um, the relationship, how you think about the authority of scripture uh, and its relationship to doctrine is, a, or maybe more broadly than just doctrine, the, the concept of tradition, for example, uh, to something like a creed. How about, we, we were just talking about the Nicene Creed. Well, what about the relationship between Scripture and the Nicene Creed? And these can be very delicate and tricky matters to, to deal with because um, there, there have been people in the history of Protestantism who, in the name of the authority of Scripture, uh, rejected the Nicene Creed. 
who said that there are phrases, terminology in the Nicene Creed that are not biblical, you know, most notably homoousios, the word of one being with the Father that, that is said, you know, of, of the person of Christ. Um, well, that's not a biblical word. This is the the argument. And because it's not a word you can look up in the Bible, uh, then 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 we reject the creed. There, there have been some groups who have taken that kind of view. I only bring this up just acknowledging it here to, to as a way of of noting that there that this is a complex and delicate matter. Um, and I think that the way that we word it in the catechism, it's, it's worded quite carefully. And, and you'll notice, uh, and this is almost uh, a little bit like the, 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 the great creeds of the tradition, uh, a lot of this is couched in negative terminology. So, so it says whatever is not revealed in or, or not established by is not to be made an article of faith, nor is it to be taught as essential to salvation. So there's a piling up of, of negatives here. So what this doesn't represent is something like a wooden um, uh, doctrine of the authority of Scripture that you might say is um, full-blown inerrancy or something like that. That's not what's being said here. It's saying that when it comes, it's important to remember this is a catechism. And it's the, the focus of this is the fundamental doctrines of the faith, the core teachings about God, creation, human nature and sin, Jesus, the Spirit, the church, salvation, the future. And, and what's being said here is that, you know, that these other uh, sources are not sufficient guides. It doesn't mean, and, and again, notice that the word sufficient, it doesn't mean they have no role to play, but in and of themselves, they are not sufficient guides for Christian doctrine. So it's not asking about, say, uh, climatology and contemporary science, right? Uh, it's asking specifically about, are these things sufficient guides for Christian doctrine? And then it, it affirms that scripture, right, is the, the measure of whether or not something uh, should be embraced and taught as basic Christian doctrine. Uh, it can be these other uh, sources can be can make con valuable contributions to our understanding of Scripture, but if there is no foundation in Scripture for a given doctrine being proposed or taught, it, then it really shouldn't be considered part of essential Christian doctrine. So that's that's the um, what's being said here. So in one sense, it's a strong statement on the authority of Scripture, but it is one that's confined to core Christian doctrines on the one hand, and then notice that phrase, essential to salvation on the other, all things essential to salvation, right? The scripture, the scriptures are the most important measure for teaching on anything having to do with salvation. So that's, um, that's a, so it's a, a strong statement of the authority of Scripture, but one that's very focused as to what teachings in particular the Scriptures are deemed authoritative for. Yeah, because a lot of people want to see inerrancy in there. I hear that all the time, and that's not really part of our tradition so much. I mean, can you speak a word about that? Because I know people ask that question. Right. So, you know, and and, and there and here again, Wesley is, is both— uh, a, a help and in some cases can be frustrating because he he has these wonderful quotable lines about the Bible that, that people like to throw out as proof that he was himself a, a kind of full-blown inerrantist. But on balance, I think what you find is you find Wesley stressing the reliability, the the unerring nature of Scripture as it relates to all things necessary for salvation. Uh, the fancy phrase we sometimes use for that is soteriological inerrancy. And you can kind of sense that here in this phrase, as things essential to salvation. 
So I think that that I would kind of press that a little bit and say, when it comes to the nature and identity of God, right? When it comes to all things related to salvation, right? So that with respect to both of those things, uh, the scriptures. Uh, are unerring. They are utterly reliable, and they are authoritative for Christian doctrine as it relates to the nature and identity and purposes of God, as well as the way of salvation, all things related to, we might say, sin and salvation. And in that sense, that's that's a, in some ways that's focused, but if you think about it, um, that's also pretty broad. I'd even be willing to push that myself. Now I'm going a little bit beyond the boundaries here of the of the of what the catechism says. But I would actually push that and say that uh, scripture is is instructive and and unerring and authoritative, not only for our understanding and relationship to God, our, our understanding of God's nature, identity, and purposes, our relating to God, but also our relation to, uh, creation and to all things in creation in the broadest sense of that term, so that that the scriptures give us. And but this is all just a expanding on uh, what is essential to salvation. Well, one of the things that's essential to salvation is re- relating to creation, all that is not God, right, in the right way, in a healthy way in the way that God intended. So in I think the scriptures that you can include that under things necessary for salvation. So to put it a little differently and more pointedly, the scriptures make it clear that we are not to worship creation. We are not to have idolatrous relationships with things like food or any other part of creation, right? On the other hand, the scriptures also are clear that creation is good and that it is God's good gift to us and including something like food and that it can be received as gift. Uh, we can rejoice in it and give thanks to God for it and share it freely just as we have freely received it. The scriptures talk about all of that too. And so in that sense, when we say something like, I, maybe what I want to stress here is some people hear this phrase, soteriological inerrancy, they are sufficient as, as to all things related to salvation, as if that's some kind of slippery attempt to, to downplay right the authority of Scripture. Well, depending on, on how you think about salvation— and if it has to do not just with your relationship to God, but to the whole of creation, um, that's fairly comprehensive. That that's not a um, a, a kind of uh, low doctrine of Scripture. I think it's a pretty high and a pretty strong doctrine of Scripture. I think you've explained that exceptionally well because I know that that is a question I often see on social media when people are talking about the GMC and all those kinds of things. Are we going to be about inerrancy? I love the idea, soteriological inerrancy, and that being a broad category, and, and indeed talking about our understanding of salvation in general. Uh, that takes me to question fifty-four, where yeah. you know what is meant by salvation? By salvation, we mean more than the promise of eternal life but a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its original purity, a recovery of the divine nature and righteousness and true holiness and justice, mercy, and truth. And you can see that grounded right out of Wesley's sermons, particularly the scripture way of salvation. And I think what you've named here is that whole idea that salvation is more encompassing than just, I go to heaven when I die. And that, that, that we really have to recapture that. That's really a major part of our Wesleyan DNA. Absolutely. Uh, and and what is it that I have to do uh, in some very simple way to be sure that I, I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Um, you know, some kind of basic confession of faith that salvation is far more encompassing. It includes that, right? Sure. It's part of it, but it's far more encompassing than that. It has everything to do with how we relate to creation and to the resources of creation, how we relate to our neighbors and Maybe the most difficult of all, 
how we relate to our enemies. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, there's the scriptures have a lot to say about that too, right? The, sort of love your enemies, you know, and pray for those who persecute you kind of bit. Um, that's, you know, part, you can see those kinds of things, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, as you know, you know, Wesley's got a whole series of sermons that are part of the standard, you know, sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he thought it was very important. And the Sermon on the Mount has, it, you could view it as a a kind of, as having everything to do with salvation, right? With with what all is a part of salvation. And so salvation is, is for, for Wesleyans, for Wesley himself and for Wesleyans, it has everything to do with how we live in the here and the now. Uh, and I would I would maybe push that one step further and say that um, how we live in the here and the now, including how we respond to and relate to our enemies, um, is a form of a, a way in which we are being prepared for how we will live in the future, uh, how we will live then. Um, and so the any, you know, how we deal with suffering, how we deal with trials. I mean, this is the the book of Hebrews has been popping up lately in the lectionary. So I'm kind of a uh, that's where my mind has been lately. Um, you know, in the book of Hebrews, you know, you've got these these people that are thinking about abandoning the faith because things have gotten bad. Well, uh, so the scriptures talk about that. And and one way to think about it is that how we handle ourselves and how we live in the midst of suffering. I mean, that's why you have a book of Job. That's why you have penitential Psalms. That's why there's so many things. You know, these are not unrelated to salvation, right? The, the, the How you live in the midst of difficulties, um, of oppression, of um, persecution, and those are ways uh, that we are being prepared by God. And now I'm just kind of following St. Augustine a little bit here in the city of God, right? Uh, we're being prepared. We're being made fit for heaven, uh, being made fit for the future kingdom. Or as Hebrews 11, that great chapter on faith says, for another country, yeah. right? A, a better country, uh, a heavenly country, right? We're being made fit for that. And it doesn't mean that that things will go perfectly here. They, they won't. Uh, if you live long enough, they won't. Uh, there will be pain and suffering. All of that's part of salvation too, right? Uh, and, and the scripture. So when we say the scriptures are authoritative for all things pertaining to salvation, um, that's kind of a way of saying for the whole of life, right? And not, not just for, you know, the formula that you need to say to get your ticket punched to heaven. Yeah, I, I heard Leonard Sweet say once, we should live in such a way now for the kingdom of God so that when it comes, it's not such a culture shock. Mm. <laughs> I love that way of putting it. I think yeah. that's really helpful. Now, you, you have a section in here on the sacraments as well. I found that really helpful. Mm -hmm. I think people misunderstand the sacraments. You define the sacraments, you and your team, as symbols and pledges of the Christian's profession and of God's love toward us. That's question 37. Mm -hmm. Or no, I'm not, I think it's 38 actually. Mm -hmm. So I know I've gotten this question several times in reading the catechism with other people. Why do we call them symbols and not signs? Does mm -hmm. Wesley use both of those terms? I know he uses the word sign, but. Yeah. So this is an interesting, you know, kind of, 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 debate or or topic in the not just for wesleyans but in the history of christian theology and how we understand the sacraments and and whether we think of them as signs or symbols um and and i think that um personally and and we do use that term symbol here i'm looking at it here uh and pledges right uh that uh i think there's you know a place for both sign and symbol terminology. There's a sense in which they they are both. Um, and, and here we can kind of think about, you know, there's sort of this notion of a symbol as something that kind of participates in the reality to which it points or which or to that and that what it represents. Um, that that it's a part of it, right? It's it's um, you know, and you could think of maybe the cross as a symbol that way, right? It's it's um, versus a sign in the most literal sense that that is um, 
that might be uh, just kind of what it is on the surface. You you run into a stop sign, you know, and and you just you do what it says. You come to a stop, and and these are these kind of of distinctions. I I think are um, are are interesting in themselves. I'm, I'm going back to the catechism here for a second. Um, what I what I think is important is is that next question when we say, are the sacraments symbols only? All right, and and this is really important. No, right? Uh, they are means of grace by which God works invisibly in us, quickening, strengthening, and confirming our faith in Him. Now, I think that 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 if there's any kind of characteristic Wesleyan way of thinking about the sacraments, it's this, this means of grace language, more, even more so than symbol and sign. Um, and, and we, again, that, that's an interesting kind of, um, of conversation. Um, but I think it's this concept of sacraments as means of grace that is most essential to Wesley's view and to how we think about the sacraments as Wesleyans. And then what we say here means by which God works in us, quickening, strengthening, and confirming our faith in him. So that that they really are, um, what, what we're dealing with, a, a concept I like to reach for here is mediation. These are the, the it's th- through the sacraments, uh, saving, justifying, regenerating, sanctifying grace is mediated to us uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the I think that that we can affirm that Christ is present in the means, uh, the, the in the means of grace. That that there's a real presence, you might say. Um, so I think that I want to caution against getting a little too hung up on the the, the symbol sign distinction, uh, and and to think about how is it that the sacraments are mean the means by which the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll use an old word here, infuses grace, right, into the into our lives, into our hearts, um, into our minds, uh, sanctifying us in the truth that is Jesus Christ. That's to me the the real question that what what I think we we want to say very clearly, and what I think the catechism does a nice job of of saying here is and and it does say how do we encounter Christ at the Lord's Supper and it goes on to explore this that's question 44 um in in a, in a little more depth but i think that that one thing to say here is that we don't as wesleyans and i would think this would be true of wesley himself uh it's certainly true of charles wesley uh in his hymns on the lord's supper for example we do not think that sacraments are are just memorials that they're they're just something that uh a way of of reminding ourselves of some past reality but they participate in and enable us to participate in the the present reality uh, that is the work of the spirit the presence of the lord himself in our midst in our fellowship uh and 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 a presence that ultimately heals and changes and transforms us we want to make sure we capture that that whatever terminology we're going to use for the sacraments um that 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 these are not just um they don't just point backwards they also point forwards but they but it but ultimately they they are about our kind of active present participation uh, in the transforming work of God. Yeah, and sometimes we want to define things that are really kind of like the way the the prayer after communion goes. We give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have fed us, united us with Christ and given us a foretaste of the great banquet to come. There's a sense of mystery around that that our language can't always capture. That's right. Yeah, yeah, they are. They, these are are great mysteries. One of my favorite uh, kind of metaphors for um, the Lord's Supper is a, a kind of a medieval metaphor: the medicine of salvation. Mm. Right. Um, so to think of, I think we can do a lot worse than to think of the sacraments in a medis- as, as as a form of medicine uh, through which. 
the the Holy Spirit brings healing to our lives, to our minds, to the way we think, uh, heals our 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 thinking about God and about creation, about life, about our neighbor, uh, heals our desires, heals our loves, uh, our uh, heals us of the damage that's done by sin, whether that's self-inflicted or the result of someone else's sin uh, against us, and on and on and on. That that there's the sacraments are uh, a form of medicine. That would be another way, a little bit of an older way to think about them. But one that I think the means of grace language uh, is very much amenable to. Great stuff. Now, when I read this, I think, man, there's there's so much here, but there's probably so much more too that you all had to make decisions about mm-hmm. in terms of what to include, what not to include. Otherwise, the catechism becomes unwieldy. And if that had been the case for me as a as a ninth grader, it would have probably shut me down at that point because it's a lot. But um, are there things that you would want to include that are not yet there or things mm-hmm. that you would highlight or... Yeah, if if you could do it again, is there anything you'd change? That's a great question. You know, we talked about this a little bit on the task force about, you know, after the, you know, you've got these very basic questions. Uh, and, and it's and I want to stress that for your listeners that, that you know, as you've asked some questions, I've kind of rambled a little bit about, you know, medicine and this, that, these other kind. But but the catechism itself, if 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 your listeners will go and look at it. The, the questions are really basic and the answers are very succinct and also very basic. Now, after the answer in each case, you've got a, a list of biblical texts, biblical passages that the task force is re- recommending uh, as places to go in scripture to think about that question and answer a little more deeply and, and, and in conversation with Scripture. Now, I, I want to say quickly here that uh, the biblical the biblical texts that are there, uh, these were provided by a special team uh, that worked on this. Uh, and I want to highlight that uh, David De Silva, Bill Arnold, Sue Nicholson, David Watson, they all worked on, on the biblical material extensively. So this does have, if you will, the... the, the uh, the contributions of biblical scholars are a part of this catechism, especially where the the, the the biblical passages are concerned. Now, as to what else could be there, that we talked about that. And one of the things that I, I really think could easily be added, whether or not somebody else will add it or not, I don't know. Uh, but but I think that pastors, church leaders could feel free to, to kind of add this themselves uh, if they are teaching the catechism, and then that it would take a little work, but actually it would be very interesting to do it. You could look at Wesley sermons and maybe say, you know, with a given set of questions and answers about a given doctrine, you know, okay, for questions 30, whatever, you know, 30, I'm just making these numbers up, but, you know, for questions 23 to 27, uh, the, having to do with this doctrine, you know, see Wesley, the following two or three of Wesley's sermons. Now, one reason we shied away from that was the question of the status of Wesley's sermons whether they are standards of doctrine, whether they should be viewed as standards of doctrine, uh, is a is a deeply contested matter uh, in the history of Methodism. And as a task force, we we couldn't be sure where a convening general conference of the Global Methodist Church would come down on that matter. So we were a little bit reluctant because if you if you supply Wesley sermons in connection with maybe certain sections of the Catechism or specific questions. You begin to suggest that alongside Scripture and perhaps the Nicene Creed, uh, you know that these sermons have a kind of binding uh, status for what we teach, and that is a deeply contested matter. Uh, in and I'll say deeply contested among conservative Wesleyan theologians. I hear Billy Abraham. I hear Billy Abraham speaking in the background somehow. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Billy thought that that material, you know, should be recommended reading. It's, it's there for additional formation purposes. 
But but I, on more than one occasion, I heard him say that that we're nuts to to want to make all of of the even the standard sermons, the British forty four, the American fifty two, to say all of that material should be thought of as a doctrinal standard, and partly because in those forty four or fifty two sermons. Wesley talks about a lot of things well beyond the basic doctrines that we see covered in the catechism. So that that's one of the, the issues there. Now, um, so but we did think that these, you know, some some follow-up in maybe some Wesley sermons could be useful, uh, but also it, it could be interesting to, I mean, you, you could go so many ways with this, uh, to cross-reference some other uh, historic catechisms. You mentioned, you know, the catechism that you grew up with, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, it, it, the more, a more advanced course, if you will, could look at similarities and differences, you know, between this catechism and some other historic catechisms. How how is it that we are similar in our beliefs to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and where are the places where we differ? You could easily do something like that, um, but again, I think this is all up to the imagination and, and also the need of particular congregations and what they what they want. Do they do, do you have a group of people that want to go deeper, that want to do some comparative analysis? Well, a, a thoughtful pastor could easily pull that off. Yeah, you set this catechism side by side with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and you 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 comp- as you work through them. Uh, you just kind of look back and forth and let that be part of the conversation. What's different? Why is it different? Wh- where are the differences? Um, so I think those would be things you could do with the catechism. By keeping it a little bit short and a little bit straightforward, We, I think what we wanted to do was to leave these kinds of options open based on the knowledge and skill and ability of whoever is doing the the teaching of the catechism. Uh, my hope is that pastors will 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 do this work. Uh, those who have some training and who can maybe take help people go beyond what's right there on the page and 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 do some of this more interesting work. Take a look at some Wesley sermons or, or compare it with some other catechisms. I think there are a lot of possibilities there. And it, it it kind of, but but there's no substitute for just working people through this basic material the first time, you know. And then if if you begin to see that you've got some people that want to take it to another level, there there are certainly ways you can do that. Yeah, I was hoping to see maybe down the road. Uh, a section on a Wesleyan theological anthropology, because I think the idea of personhood right now is so contested. And I don't know if anybody's done any good work on that. Maybe if you've got some suggestions of people we can read around that, but I think that whole idea of personhood, I know Tim Tennant's talked about this and some of his work and, and others. Um, who are we as human beings? I think is, is an important question as well. That's just me. Absolutely. And and there are so many things that the catechism, you know, really important things that that it doesn't expand on or go into a lot of depth about. Uh, and, and it could be that there are there is need for and will be an occasion for down the road um, a, a maybe another, a kind of advanced level. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to call it a catechism, but something that would be the next step beyond the basic catechism. Let's look at some specific issues uh, more deeply and engage the Christian tradition, engage Wesley, uh, and obviously engage the scriptures first and foremost uh, to deepen our understanding of whether it be theological, uh, anthropology. Um, And I've been in conversation recently with a a good friend of mine, a a theologian by the name of Chris Green, who's doing a lot of work on death. Um, And so even something like like death and and how we think about death uh, and, and how does how does Jesus help us to think differently about death than maybe how many other people in the world might think about death? Uh, that th- those are some, you know, that's something that everybody faces. That's common to all of us. And so, what does it mean to be a person? Uh, how do I think about 
you know, death uh, because my loved ones are going to die. My friends are going to die. I'm going to die. Right. Death is around us all the time. And, and, and I think we need resources to, that go deeper and help us to grapple together with those kinds of, of issues. And, and, and we could sit here and name dozens of others. Sure. Sure. Uh, but uh, we, we're going to need more materials. I think this is a wonderful start. I want to make sure I give a, a, a shout out uh, to give real credit here to, uh, to Teddy Ray and Phil Talon. Um, part of, of my, one of my main contributions uh, as chair of the task force, frankly, was to ask Teddy Ray and, and, and Phil Talon to, to be two of the principal kind of initial architects to, to begin to draft these questions and answers and then bring them to the task force for, for feedback and for discussion and refinement, which we did multiple times. So this material is the result, as you said at the beginning, of a whole team of people, including pastors and scholars and, and lay people. There were lots of, of eyes that were on this at every stage. Uh, Teddy Ray and, and, and Phil Talon, though, they did some, some really important work in terms of the, the drafting of that, of the 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 basic or the 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 main content of the document. So while it's been refined and it's in the and they they got a lot of feedback and incorporated all of that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, someone has to to kind of put pen to paper. And and more than anyone, they they did that. Uh, and so they've done a great service for all of us. And I want to be sure we we give them appropriate credit. Well, thank you for that. And thank you to all who worked on this. And this is a marvelous resource that can be used with confirmation classes, with adult classes, and it's available now. We'll make sure we put a, a link to it in the show notes. I'm sure it'll be in published form at some point here uh, down the line, but it's available now for you to look over. We're using it. It's a, it's a marvelous uh, resource that I just can't recommend enough. Jason, I want to thank you for joining us today on Holy Conversations, and I want to thank you all for joining us as well. Remember that you can always send us your questions and comments at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. You can follow us on WCA Pod on Twitter, and if you want to learn more about the Global Methodist Church, you can look up globalmethodist.org. So glad to have you with us. See you next time here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.